When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Ah, what the? Is there a door behind all those spiders? <laughs> it's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. <sighs> look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax, you booked a Verbo. Do you ever wonder about where and how your clothes are made? Everlane removes the mystery by telling you where your clothes are made and what it costs to make them. Why buy a t-shirt for $50 if you knew it only cost $7 to make? I wouldn't. And with Everlane, you don't have to either. You will never overpay for quality clothes. Everlane only makes premium essentials using the finest materials without traditional markups. And they tell you their real costs so you know you're never overpaying. Everlane wants you to know what you're paying for and why. They are radically transparent about every step in their process, from the materials they use to the ethical factories they work with. You can find all the information you want about their process on their webpage, on the page of the item that you are trying to buy or thinking about buying. Because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Everlane's clothes look better, cost less, and last longer. Essentials like their Cotton Crew t-shirt are exactly what they should be. Simple, stylish, and made from quality materials. Everlane's timeless essentials are just what you're looking for. No frills, just quality. You can get free shipping on your first order if you go to everlane.com slash friends. Again, that's everlane.com slash friends. I am a fan of their stuff. I was before they became an advertiser on the show. I'm especially a fan of their shoes, which um, have the higher toe covering on the ladies' shoes than usual. And I found out from reader feedback that is called a vamp. I did not know that. So if you want to try out Everlane, again, you can get free shipping on your first order if you go to everlane.com slash friends. Free shipping, first order, everlane.com slash friends. Hi, it's Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to a special encore edition of With Friends Like These. We have two interviews from last year here. Uh, one from Ben Howe, who's a conservative filmmaker and former Tea Party activist. And another with Adam Savage, who you may know from Mythbusters, but now has a whole empire uh, underneath the moniker Tested. We decided to bring back these two interviews because they engage with some ideas that we hear from you guys a lot about. Number one, Ben Howe, who talks about the lessons that the Tea Party has for the resistance. What can we learn from what the Tea Party did wrong and right? Also, I think you'll value some of um, Ben's reflections on his personal journey out of the Tea Party. And Adam, well, Adam, he's a mythbuster, and he helps field a call from a reader about her sister, who's come under the spell of conservative conspiracy theories. Spoiler alert, I'm not sure we entirely figure out what to do, but I think the advice that Adam offers is still pretty useful, especially if you're still your in-law's place uh, over the holidays. 
Anyway, thanks for being such loyal listeners throughout the year and please enjoy this encore presentation. Welcome to the show, Ben Howe, senior contributor for Red State and the author of an upcoming book, which I guess we're going to have to talk about called The Immoral Majority. How are you, Ben? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, I've I've wanted to talk to you now. I realize it's it's almost exactly a year. (laughs) <laughs> that I've yeah. been wanting to talk to you. That's right. I don't. I, I think that you and I have been uh, communicating for a long time. Yes. Yes. Uh, and I should. I've, I've, of course, I, I've. I've always enjoyed our exchanges. But what got my attention, and I guess a lot of people's attention, was almost exactly a year ago. You wrote a piece for Red State. Um, you know. Uh, well, why don't you you tell me about the piece you wrote for for Red State? Uh, which was entitled, sure. I think this the, the people can probably get the idea of it. Um, I lied to myself for years about who my allies were. No more. Right. Well, basically, uh, I had reached sort of a tipping point because, I mean, primarily because of the nomination of Donald Trump. Um, there's, I think people have the ability to look past a lot and lie to themselves a lot in order to keep moving forward in what they think is overall the right thing. And that's what I was doing for a long time. So I had a lot of things I believed with the conservative movement and with the Republican Party, but I had to look past certain things and red flags uh, in order to keep on that track. But once it all exploded in my face, because people were actually actively supporting a man that I thought was not only the antithesis of everything that I've been fighting for, but was just generally a crappy person. <laughs> uh, I, I started to observe, okay, well, who is it that's out there really hardcore supporting this guy? And I came to the sad conclusion that these were all like to the man. It was every person that I had thought, wow, that person's got a little bit of a different view on things than I do. They were the ones out there supporting him. And all the pundits that I had looked at and said, sometimes I really hate what Ann Coulter says. Sometimes I really hate what Laura Ingram says. And, oh, what do you know? They happen to be Trump supporters. So the piece was generally me saying, I should not have taken part in excusing bad behaviors, despite what I thought I was doing right. It's irrelevant because what I did really was I helped elevate all of these bad people and then ultimately a really bad guy who was running for president and was probably going to win and then turned out did win. And I want to kind of separate our conversation to two things. I mean, it may seem weird to people that we're talking about a piece that was written a year ago. So I, I definitely want to talk about actually what's happened for you in the aftermath of that piece. Sure. But yeah. first, I feel like I need to point out that what made your piece different for me from a lot of other, you know, never Trump screeds. And, and, you know, there are a lot of really good ones written. And as someone who's opposed to Trump, I felt a lot of, you know, righteous indignation um, feels awesome, you know, like when you're reading someone who you sort of disagree with, come to your side. And like, I think a lot of liberals kind of felt that way. Like, yeah, you know, even this guy realizes it. But what I thought was interesting about your piece was that it wasn't, it, like you said, it wasn't just a denunciation of Trump. It was something about Trump that made you rethink your allies in general. Like the way that I'd been describing your piece, which is not a, a it's not an exact quote from, but I, I believe I am I get your gist is that you had 
you know, you were you were uh, sort of coming to grips with the fact that you had allied yourself with like racists and um, yes. greed heads because you agreed with each other on marginal tax rates. Right. Because there's this thing, and I think that everybody to some degree does this, and I was definitely doing it, which is we use this word fringe at different times and in different ways. And sometimes you use fringe to excuse things that are uncomfortable. So for me, you, I would use the word fringe to describe uncomfortable allies. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, you know, so-and-so is just part of the fringe. Those guys are fringe. It's not representative and so on and so forth. And that's hard to continue to do once the fringe, uh, and I just literally did air quotes, by the way, I can't <laughs> see them. Um, but what you, you, you can't still call them the fringe if they basically take over one of the two major political parties and have a chance at sitting in the White House. They're not fringe anymore. And my most of what I was writing about during that time period, and I would say in a lot of ways have continued to write, it, that this was a moment where conservatives and, and uh, Republicans, to a lesser degree, but conservatives mostly, had to decide who they are. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them did decide. A lot of them decided that if four out of 10 objectives can be hit, or even if six out of 10 objectives can be hit, and even if they're hitting those by allying themselves with unsavory, horrible people, hey, at least the things they wanted happened. And I think that that's, you know, in terms of American politics and governance and everything that's gone wrong in, in, in the country over the last hundred years, it's always that short-term thinking that's taking hold. And now it's gotten to a point where people are willing to work with trash in order to achieve their short-term objectives. And I'm just not. And that's where we get into the, sort of the second part of what I want to talk to you about, which is um, the aftermath of this piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, to contextualize, uh, you know, at the time you wrote this piece, uh, you have a consulting business. Uh, you mm-hmm. used to work for the Heritage Foundation, which is, uh, you know, one of the flagship think tanks mm-hmm. on the right. Um, mm-hmm. Contributor at Red State. Uh, mm-hmm. Man about town in D.C. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they throw parties in my honor all the time. Yes, yes, yes. Um, uh, what? What was the reaction uh, to this piece for you? Well, it's interesting because at, at first, um, I think that people, a lot of people, intellectually aligned with what I was saying. Uh, and that's when, to me, that's when it's easy to agree with what I was saying for a conservative. Um, because there's still options. He wasn't the nominee yet. There was this... Uh, you know, free the delegates effort that was happening. There was a lot of unrest in the party. It didn't seem like Paul Ryan perhaps was even going to sign on. Uh, Ryan seemed like he was polishing off a fifth of vodka every night. Like it just seemed like it was a bad. <laughs> he actually around. was pouring Bailey's on his Wheaties or whatever it is that he said. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. And so I think that to some extent there was, there was a lot of uh, mixed support. You know, I think the only thing that people really never had any patience for was that I said I would prefer Hillary over Trump. That nobody mm-hmm. seemed to have much patience for that. But once he became the nominee, it changed pretty dramatically and pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And it became it no longer became that I had a 
actual principled position. It was now that I was had sour grapes and that I was being stubborn and all these other stuff. And my, you know, my reply at the time was, you know, this is exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, basically what you're saying is your principles last all the way up until the point where you're worried about your party, which means you're by definition, putting your party above your principles, which was the entire objection to Trump in the first place. Mm -hmm. So are you saying you wanted uh, principles over party until what the party was in danger and then suddenly it switches back? Uh, so there was a lot of um, pushback on me at that time. And I would say since then, you know, not, I'm not trying to sound like a victim. I, I'm, I'm doing fine. <laughs> well, that would but... be that, that would that would complete your evolution to a social justice <laughs> warrior if you right. sounded like a victim. Right. So, well, and, and like, but but yes, there are. There are doors and communications and friends and allies and people who even were against Trump earlier on who now I'm something different to them. Mm -hmm. And I can live with that. I'd, I'd rather be something different and look at myself in the mirror and be okay with it. You know, they come to me every time something happens that they know I'll agree with because I never stopped being a conservative. So they'll come to me with something that Trump's done or some policy that's happened or some cabinet position that I might like. Oh, don't you see now? You know, can't you see how this is great? Mm -hmm. And I just want to smack them, you know, <laughs> uh, because what, what is how many times have had people said Gorsuch to you? Like, is that like, I mean, that's pretty much like a, it's, it's its own language now is just people saying Gorsuch over and over. Gorsuch, 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 Gorsuch. It's like um, the princess kitty cat, you know, in Mr. Rogers. Yeah. Like, meow, 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 meow. Right, it is. Gorsuch, Gorsuch. And, and, and they say that, they either say that or they say, oh, because Hillary would have been better. That's their other response. Oh, because Hillary would have been better. And I, I, I usually say something along the lines of, you know, I don't expect you to be my fan, but if you're going to criticize me, can you at least read what I wrote? I mean... Mm. I think I pretty much established that I understood from the beginning that Trump would do things that I liked, mm -hmm. that it had nothing to do with whether or not he's a complete scumbag, which I think he is. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they, they want me to change my mind on it. Like, see, this proves he's a good person. How does that prove he's a good person? It doesn't. He's, he's doing things on the advice of counsel and on the advice of, you know, people around him. But if, if, if we get a great Supreme Court nominee, how much is that going to matter when we're entangled in Syria and starting a war with North Korea and having an administration that's uh, in a web of deceit with Russia? Yeah. You know, which is something that I do believe. And the, the answer is usually, yeah, but Gorsuch. <laughs> but Gorsuch, that's going to be like the new but her emails is like, you know, that, you know, that meme that's like oh, the man. underwater sign. But at the top of it, it says, but emails. I think they should do a new one that says, but Gorsuch. Exactly. What about ism has taken over all political discourse? You know, what about ism, which is just people constantly, no matter what is happening, they say, yeah, well, what about when, well, what about when Obama, well, what about when, I'm like, you know what, he's the president, okay? I don't care about Hillary's emails anymore. I don't care about what Obama did anymore. If you want to critique the media, that's fine. Write a criticism of the media and talk about an uh, unfair coverage. I can live with that, you know, I'm sure that that's something worth talking about. 
But it's not worth talking about in the context of trying to figure out if there's something to be concerned about about this president. Yeah, I think it's so interesting. You've you've drilled into something that I think we seek to explore on this podcast, which is how much it matters whether or not someone is. I almost hate to use the term "good person" because that, to me, you can excuse a lot by saying, "But they're a good person," you know, like. And when they hold views or hold or back positions that I, that are abhorrent, but you say, but they're mm-hmm. a good person. So I kind of want to drill down on what what we're really talking about here, because like I get like I feel like sometimes people, you know, defend Ivanka as sort of but she's a good person. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't care whether or not she's a good person. I'm not sure if she is number one and number two. I feel like her positions are more important. But you're talking about something really interesting here, which is that, you know, Trump is a problem uh, not because of specific policy positions, although those are problems, too. It For you, it's that he's a he's like, you know, well, I would I have what I would say about him. I don't know how you want to describe him. Well, I made a film called The Sociopath. Right. Okay. Yes. Right. He's a venal (laughs) sociopath, uh, you know, maniac. Um, and that's the problem. It's not the specific positions that he holds. It's that no, it's not. And 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 look, you know, I've seen people do that a lot. Um, so and so is a good person. What's interesting is nobody ever says that about Trump. <laughs> like, it, 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 like his supporters will, will, will like, ah, oh, man, Trump's the best. You know what they never say? Trump's a good person. Yeah. Like this just never even comes up. But uh, no, I don't think, see, I've never been a person that subscribes to the idea that you have to be a good person to be uh, a good politician because the people really are a worthy politician, right? Like, or someone that you'd vote for. You don't have to be a good, I was going to, Hey, I voted for Hillary. I don't, I'm not, I'll tell you right now. (laughs) I'm not sure how good a person she is. Right, exactly. And I I think, um, you know, this might be, um, um, the first time that Milton Friedman's been been quoted on here, but uh, he said that it's great to to elect good people, but that the real way to make change is to make it politically profitable to do the right thing mm. to get to get because then a bad person even will do the right thing if you think it's going to politically be profitable to him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to some degree, that's been my mantra. I've just been like, well, yeah, I think this person's probably not somebody I'd want to hang out with, but I think that we can get them to do what we need. The problem with Trump is he's a maniac. (laughs) And I don't think that he is bound by things like what makes sense. I think that, uh, you know, we're, we're lucky if we've got good people around him that will, um, continually barrage him with what the right thing to do is. That would be a good thing, but he doesn't have that. He's got Steve Bannon you know, in his ear. And so it's not that I don't think that there's any chance that even though he's a scumbag, he couldn't be controlled. Sure. That's possible, but not the way things are lining up because the way things are lining up is the Republican party is just suddenly acting like he's the greatest thing since Reagan Mm -hmm. and that he's this ideologue and he's none of those things. He's none of those things. He's He's easily influenced by what he perceives in a particular moment to be popular, and he mostly acts on what the last thing somebody said to him. I know. And just out of personal peak, I mean, he really is a fucking toddler. Like, I, it's just yeah. an insult to, insult to toddlers to call him a toddler, but 
I can't, it's, it's having, it's almost the only thing I can use to describe him though. He's just poor impulse control and selfish. He has like, he has the ego and emotional range of a, of a very small person. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, the amount of, the amount of tweets alone of him going after people that wrote like, I mean, he would go after somebody who wrote a negative blog on hellokitty.blogspot.com yeah. if he came across it. <laughs> he put them on blast. He would. You know. And by the same and, token, his 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 uh staff would take a positive post from hellokitty.blogspot.com uh, and put it in his yeah. morning reads if they and and he, and he oh, would yes. he would be flattered by it, you know? Like he's but, but the real danger with Trump is for a lot, he's always been that way. Yeah. Like that's one of the things that amazes me is people go, oh, he's going to change. He's always been, yeah. he's always been this way. I, okay. And so what's amazing, what's different now is, okay, so three years ago, uh, he would have gone after somebody who wrote that at hellokitty.blogspot.com, but nobody would have backed him up. Now he's got an entire party that's like, well, no, seriously, the problem with America is hellokitty.blogspot.com. Like they'll, they'll run a whole campaign against that. It's fake news. Hellokitty.blogspot.com is fake news. That's, that's what right. I have to say. That is the <laughs> most pressing matter in American politics right now is hellokitty.blogspot.com. Who leaked? Who leaked to Hello Kitty? Um, <laughs> so I actually want to want to roll back just a little bit here because, again, I, I think one of the things that really struck me about your 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 essay of a year ago and something that I, I continue to hear from you is actually that it's not just about Trump, though, right? That it's no. about the party and the movement that created the conditions for Trump. Because I, I, I'm interested, like I talked to Greg Doucette a while ago, and I think you and he and actually my husband have this in common. You know, stop me if I'm wrong, but it's that, you know, all three of you, like, I mean, I think I would say generously, none of you fit the typical Republican profile. Um, but considered my like my husband sort of, you know, he's like, yeah, OK, I'm a I'm a I'm a social liberal conservative, you know, fiscally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you said more of a libertarian, whatever you can describe yourself. But what happened with all three of you was that Trump happened and it didn't it wasn't just that you had a problem with Trump. It's that it forced you to reconsider your relationship to this whole movement. Yes. Which uh, it, I, I think and I think it, it, that's different than what's happened for a lot of never Trumpers, you know, like I think because yes, a lot of never Trumpers are still uh, they're still applying kind of the old rules to the conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're still saying, uh, yeah, but you got to support the nominee or they're, you know, well, you got to. Uh, and if they if they even if they had never supported the nominee once he was president, well, you got to support the president. And then when he does good things, you know, hey, you got to support what's good and hold accountable what's bad. And I'm like, you know. That's true. Like, it's fine to acknowledge that something you like happened. Okay. That's mm-hmm. great. I don't think, I personally, I don't feel like you had some, you know, intense obligation to make sure to personally thank Lord Trump for it. But, <laughs> uh, I, I, I get what they're saying in that regard. But for me, uh, the entire apparatus, party apparatus, of which I'm no longer a part of, um, and the conservative movement at large, sort of the professional conservatives, they are the ones that I hold to a much higher standard than I even do Trump at this point, because I don't think Trump exists without them. Mm-hmm. And I think that people were looking for leadership, thought leaders to tell them, uh, you know, fill in the blanks for them. 
and say, here's all the things you should be concerned about. Here's what you should be considering and so on and so forth. And instead, they just sort of towed this party line, which means it's really about winning elections. And beyond winning and being in power, everything else is negotiable and optional. Um, And people who for years in the Tea Party and elsewhere railed on that very concept are cheerleading it now. And so to me, it's just, and, and I know it's judgmental and all this other stuff. It just, to me, means they're not good. They're just not good people. Mm. <laughs> and I don't want to be part of a movement that's full of bad people. Mm. All right, we're going to take a short break. Um, and then I want to continue the conversation uh, here with Ben Howe. We'll be right back. Magazines weave together great writing and beautiful photography to tell stories better. Expand your knowledge and simply entertain. National Geographic takes you further away. The Atlantic, a lot of whose writers we feature on the show, gets to the heart of issues with really in-depth reporting. People helps you relax, wired in vogue, let you see the future. But the quality of magazines should be available anytime without needing to carry them around or have them clutter up the home. Well, now there's a better way to get your favorite magazines, and that's Texture. The Texture app delivers unlimited access to over 200 premium magazines, and right now you can try Texture for free. Just imagine having your favorite magazines and their back issues anytime, anywhere. I will tell you, I have actually unsubscribed from almost every paper magazine I used to subscribe to. I can get them all on Texture. Uh, It means less recycling for me. It means I can read them anytime. It means I can read back issues without having to sort through an entire pile of stuff. I can just find the back issue I'm looking for. So if you want to start a free trial with Texture, go to texture.com slash friends. If you choose to continue, you will get Texture for just $9.99 a month. That's over 30% off their listed price. Again, that's by going to texture.com slash friends. So go to texture.com slash friends to start your free trial. And again, get it for just $9.99 a month afterwards. Texture.com slash friends. So you're just talking about the Tea Party and and how, you know, Trump's rise and eventual <laughs> victory, you know, kind of made you reconsider um, the movement and whether or not you wanted to be associated with it and how the tea par- for the Tea Party and, you know, the conservative movement, winning became the only thing and they made moral compromises and worked with bad people in order to win. Now, I am thinking of the left because uh, there's been a lot of uh, self-congratulation that we are now the new Tea Party. Right? right? Like that, woohoo, like we're taking their tactics and sticking it to yeah. them and you know, rowdy town halls. And I want to say, like, I am pro-rowdy town hall. I was pro-rowdy town hall when the Tea Party did it. I like I like rowdy town halls just on principle, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I like people going and telling their elected representatives what they think and what they feel, and I feel that like they should do that with whatever range of passion they have, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we're also kind of now having a little bit of a conversation about how important winning is and who yeah. we should make mm-hmm. our allies with. Do you think that that... that side of the Tea Party experience has anything to teach the left? Oh, <laughs> I think that that the left is, and I, I've actually sort of been asked this question on a couple of different places, um, because I, I think that some on the left, like you just verbalized, are 
cautious as you see it unfolding. Mm-hmm. Um, because it sort of looks like you, you want to step back and go, hey, you know, they just did that and the end result was Trump, right? Like, mm-hmm. This just happened. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and, you know, my warning has been, and I have continued to offer this warning. Um, wh- okay, so when the Tea Party started, I know that there's a lot of controversy uh, uh, between people on the left and the right about what it was when it started. So I'm only going to be telling you what it was to me when it started, which was basically a libertarian movement. Yeah, no, I, I, I think uh, that's true. We didn't even like w- w- people would bring up social issues back then, like back in 2009. People would literally say, Stop it. We d- we're not here to talk about that. We're not here to talk about immigration. We're not here to talk about gay marriage. We're not here to talk about abortion. We would send people out that had abortion signs. We'd be like, Get out of here. That's mm-hmm. not what this is. And you are making it that. Because what we were interested in was just fiscal issues. That was it. Hmm. And, but at the same time, you know, all of these people have these different social values and they are divisive. And as I'm sure, you know, uh, bad players know how to capitalize on that. And they did, they swooped in, they started, you know, ringing the bell on, on issues that they pretty much knew were going to divide people, even within the tea party. And start redefining what the Tea Party is, because, you know, doing that is is an easy way to send out mailers and say, you know, send us money so that we can fight the abortionists Mm -hmm. instead of keeping Tea Party on what it was. And it it helped uh, elevate the birther movement, which ultimately helped elevate the Trump movement. So my warning to the left is. Don't be proud of the leaderless movement. Okay. Mm. Like they, we, we would brag about it. You know, there is no leader. We're all the leaders. That's a bad idea. (laughs) We should be waving those Soros checks around. We got a leader. Right. Here he is. Right. You know, it's fine for that leader to rise up naturally and organically. I think that's a good thing. But we were flat out rejecting the idea of leader of, of, you know, what central leadership? What is this? The federal government? Like people would get all <laughs> puffy about it. And now I look back and I'm like, you know, we probably could have used somebody that could eloquently define what we're talking about. Same way Obama had just done. Uh-huh. Um, the same way for conservatives that Reagan had done. You know, these are the great movement leaders. Were were throughout history. They they speak for a movement. And we didn't have that. And as a result, we had 100,000 leaders. And then you and, became ripe for the picking, right? I mean, then, then yeah. it became easy for, for people like Heritage Foundation, people, institutions well, like uh, Heritage Foundation, like Jim DeMint. Trump. Like Trump. Yeah. He became that leader. Yeah. And so, I, you know, y'all, y'all are going to end up with, you know, President Simon Cowell, if y'all are. <laughs> <laughs> Oprah. Know. All right, I guess well, not him. But. Oprah, probably. Um, <laughs> Oprah, there you go. Although, I mean, well, part of me wants to argue back, and because I, I think there is some something to this, which is that the fundamental values of a movement um, matter mm-hmm. too, right? Sure. That it would be hard for the left to create our version of Trump because... And I, I say this as a leftist because, you know, and, and I, I but I do believe this, 
which is that I think the value system that we're working with would not put a person like Trump in charge. Now, that's not to say that anyone we that's not to say that it's perfect. Mm -hmm. But I have two pushbacks. Okay. The first is you have a faith in humanity that I have lost. <laughs> okay. <laughs> one, one of the things that I True said. True fact, yes. Uh, you, you underestimated Trump. I was like, no, I underestimated you. Yeah, yeah. It was the people that I underestimated. So yeah. that's the first thing is definitely I don't have that much faith in humanity anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, the second thing is it's it's not always about, to me, whether or not Trump's values he, his values happened to be scummy, okay? But that's not the entirety of what made him dangerous. What makes him dangerous is that he's not, he's plastic. He's not real. He has no core ideology. He has no specific, uh, you know, agenda other than self-service. Right. I was going to say, like, what makes him dangerous is that he's, that he does have one value, which is, right, which is himself. himself. That's what makes him dangerous. Right. It's not and, that he's plastic, so, even if he was totally plastic, that that would well, that would make him a sociopath still. But it yeah. would be it, it would be just a different kind of problem. Like the problem here isn't that he's not uh, he's unpredictable or totally plastic. The problem is that he's actually pretty fucking predictable because he has one. Yeah, value. All you have to do is figure out what's going to benefit him or what can he perceive will benefit him. Yeah. Or is somebody smarter than him going to be able to make the case that it benefits him? And then he'll do it. Yeah. If Vladimir Putin sat down with Donald Trump for an hour and convinced him it was absolutely in his best interests to let the United States just join the Russian empire, he would be coming back to America to make the case. That's this the is why I still have hope for single payer. Like, just right. get, just get <laughs> Bernie I, in a I room look. with Trump. And I think <laughs> I don't disagree with you. <laughs> I don't disagree with you at all. And it's one of the reasons, you know, really uh, a side note here, what you mentioned about Ivanka. Yeah, that's another thing that I've been warning people about is. I really think that the left should reconsider how they interact with Ivanka mm. because again, it doesn't matter that much whether or not you really like her as a person. The difference between Ivanka and Trump is that I think she does have some particular, probably center left points of view. Mm. And she is, I think out of everybody in the world, the most likely to be able to convince her dad of anything. He clearly, of, of all of his faults, the one thing that I will say is, and even though sometimes the words he uses concern me, <laughs> he loves his daughter. Okay? Oh boy, does he love you know? her. Like, yeah, like what, which, really which, which different Greek word for love is it? That is the question. <laughs> right. I mean, he does. <laughs> and I think that she's the primary reason that Corey Lewandowski was gone. Right. I think that uh, so what, she had a lot to do with why Paul Manafort was gone. And I think that right now she's backing off on Bannon, but I find it so hard to believe that Ivanka wakes up every day and then thinks, thank God Bannon's there. Well, what do you think you know, about how the I, left should interact with her? Because, like, I'll tell you, like, I don't know. I don't I don't trust her. Like, I don't think I, I think that she has sort of these vague center left. But actually, the next segment in the show is about Ivanka. So hey, spoiler alert. <laughs> um, but uh, she may have these like very maybe even intentionally vague center left values but they're bullshit i mean she doesn't she's a trump first i mean i think oh, that she's definitely a trump first she's i think her center left values are so are just because that's what the socially acceptable move is in her um milieu right like i think oh, you yeah. you put I mean, her in the I, white house I, long I enough she'll change i think she's vague about her uh, positions. Actually, I think she's vague about her positions because 
they are center left. I think she's vague about him because they're vague. I think (laughs) (laughs) they they might be vague, (laughs) but there's to me, she's more like, uh, you know, Jamie Lannister (laughs) wanting to defend his family name, even though he has a serious problem with him, you know? And, you know, so to me, it's like she's trying to defend her family name or whatever. I think that's her obligation. Uh. It's not because I think she's this great person. I think she's a conflicted person. But really the key for me is whether or not she's a good or a bad person. I don't think anybody on earth has more influence over Donald Trump than Ivanka Trump. And if you already know that that person, at the very least, has some vague center-left ideas, that's who you should be focused on, is, is sitting down with her. Should we be nice to her, and then? Is that what you're saying? We should, like, we should... I think to some degree you should be nice to her. Because the other, <laughs> the other, fact, of, the other fact of the matter is that people are influenced, whether or not they like to admit it or not, but especially people in her position, they are influenced by wanting to be liked in circles that they mm. were previously liked. Mm. And Donald Trump used to go on every movie and television show in humanity and nobody in Hollywood really, they they thought he was an idiot, but they didn't care. They had a Comedy Central roast of him. He was part of the culture, you know, and I think Ivanka enjoyed the fruits of that. And she got to go to the big parties and she got to be invited to things. She got to be, get her ass kissed. Mm. She's not getting that anymore. So no, no, no. whether or not you're appealing to her vague center left ideology or you're appealing to her need to be accepted among the elite, no matter what, there's a good chance you could influence her to influence him. Yeah, I think that I, I, it's, a, it's a matter of trade-offs because I think what you'd have to compromise in order to influence her, I'm not sure if it's worth it. Because also, I'll tell you what else, like, y- you know, who's going to be rushing to to bow down before her and make her feel special is the center right. Um, yes. and, and they're going to have a much easier time of it. Um, then well, and, and that's, you know, one of the things that I will not know, you know, to, to, to get back to, cause I, I, I sidetracked, I didn't mean to do that. But we both did, but uh, I want to get back to the, uh, the, the, the question of the tea party and the example they said, um, what's, what I think that you have to be careful about is realizing, which I have realized over the last couple of years that, uh, Yes, people want to be led, but man, people want to be led. And mm-hmm. if, somebody, if somebody steps into the position and they are loud enough and they are big enough and they have enough resources to make them, themselves larger than life, uh, people get devoted. And then it is almost impossible to shake their view of this person they've become devoted to. Mm. And I don't know if this is like an overall human trait. I don't know what it is, but there, there's a lot of this sort of cultist mentality that happens. I know that on the left, you guys felt it a little bit with the Bernie bros. <laughs> and I, I know that on the right, we had felt it, uh, you know, at various times when we would have arguments, but never as much as when we saw with Trump. And so somebody could, if you don't have a leader that is really defining what the movement stands for, and then And you're careful about who the leader is. I mean, that's, I think, actually, I think, actually, if I can just refine your point a little bit about, I mean, being careful about being a leaderless movement. I think what happens if you if you don't, if you consider yourself leaderless, then your leader will be chosen for you. Whereas what you need to do is choose your leader, you know, and I do would say like that's the difference with Bernie and Trump is I actually think that the left did the the non-center left, the left left did choose mm-hmm. him, you know, 
and yes. and unfortunately that just didn't work out. The center left felt otherwise, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think there's questions about the, you know, y'all have your own establishment issues. Yes. For sure. yes, yes. And I think that that played a huge role in how things ended up, how they played out. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think just sorry to use Game of Thrones again, but yeah, you're going to end up with Cersei Lannister if nobody's on the throne. So yeah, no, I think, you know, I love Game of Thrones references. I think um, with Trump and Ivanka, it's especially we got a House of Lannister thing going on for sure. <laughs> Um, that's, that's a good all, point. Yeah, it's, that's that's, good point. that's just the way it looks from the outside. Um, right. No, I, I, I mean, look, she, uh, I, I made the joke and I got a little bit of trouble for it online because I said, uh, of course, she has an office in the in the White House. Uh, that's he wanted her to be the first lady. Well, I, I don't. I mean, <laughs> you may get in trouble for that, but we can like take all of the innuendo out of that, and it's just still the yeah. truth. I mean, like it we is. we can it be is. we can revert to kind of like decorum here. And just say, no, she's definitely the first lady. I mean, like. Oh, absolutely. She is. And I think Jared is just her proxy. I don't I don't I don't think Jared goes out and, and, and uh, I don't think Jared meets up with Ivanka, talks about what is going to happen. And then Ivanka disagrees. and Jared goes, well, I'm sorry. I know what's best. I yeah. just don't think that's what happens. I mean, he's the he's the person who came into the family. Yep. So he's he's subservient to the family. And she, above everyone except Trump, represents the family. Yeah. Although it's interesting, you know, I mean, I feel people, I think, underestimate even Trump's uh, capacity for selfishness when it comes to his family. Like, he's cut off family before, you know. Oh, absolutely. Like in he, fact, I think Ivanka's the only one he would. I think he cut off his son's. Oh, in a minute. Like, in a heartbeat. Absolutely. I, think I mean, would. and I think Ivanka could. I mean, honestly, like maybe even Ivanka. He's divorced his wives. I mean, like sure. <laughs> the guys. I don't know. She's the only one that I've ever seen. Like he's so like that's his most prized yeah. possession. It, oh, and it is a possession. Opinion. I think. I think so. Um, yes. well, it is a possession for sure. <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, now we're kind of getting into uh, Lord of the Rings kind of territory. Yeah, the innuendo it, stuff. Yeah. You know, Ben, I, I really appreciate talking to you. I, we, we're going to have to close this off. I, I, I have more questions. Um, okay. But we're going to maybe... I'm sorry. You know, I, I, like, I, I took us off on the Ivanka stuff, but like, I, oh, I really think that all, all of it is so intertwined. It is. Uh, in y'all's efforts. Oh, it, it is. And, it, and I'm also thinking a lot about, you know, we didn't really get to the end of the conversation about could the left produce a Trump. Um which I think may be an interesting one to continue to have. You know, before we go, though, I can't let this one question go unasked, which is that, do you feel like you've changed in the past year? <laughs> yes. Well, I think I've always called myself, like you said that your husband is uh, socially liberal, fiscally conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, like, I am, I, I am I'm probably socially conservative. It's always just been a question to me of whether or not I feel the government needs to legislate mm-hmm. my social conservatism. Mm-hmm. So I guess I would say I'm socially conservative, but um, in terms of governance, I'm more libertarian. Uh, but where I have changed a lot is how I interact with partisanship and with disagreement and with compassion and empathy. Mm. And I've been I've been sort of toying with that for years, talking about how the right treats optics and how they act towards people and then are surprised they won't vote for them. You know, after Romney, I said, what do you think you're going to tell half the country they're lazy pieces of crap and then 
fly into their really poor area and tell them they're not paying enough taxes. Who's going to vote for that? You know, so I've been toying with that for years, but now I've reached a point where I, I think that the only way to move forward is to affect the culture and to affect the people in terms of what they expect out of government. And that if we keep trying to fix things at the government level, like, oh, we need to get rid of this guy and add this guy or vote this guy out or recall that guy. Like, that's not dealing with the real problem. The real problem is that the people voted for these jackasses. And none of that's going to change as long as I'm going toe-to-toe with you over an issue that you and I will never agree on. Like, if we would never agree on abortion, why are you and I having this argument every day instead of talking about the things we do agree on and seeing what can happen? Mm. So I've changed in that way because I used to be very like, you know, no compromise. and, And I'm just not that way anymore. And it might be just a, can I, I'm getting old. Can I ask a specific yeah. question? Because um, I know with other people who uh, went through a personal self-examination uh, after Trump's rise, uh, mm-hmm. I won't name names, but my husband. Uh, <laughs> like he's, it rhymes with my husband. Rhymes with my husband. Um, he hasn't listened to every episode, so sometimes like I... I I I get feel like I get to talk about to him about him, but uh, it's always a gamble. Like sometimes it's going to come back to bite me. Um, not that he minds. It's just I I have to be careful to represent his views. But I think I'm going to be accurate here. Like he's reconsidered some of his fiscal views. Um, I don't know how far. I, I can't say like how far he's moved or if he's moved at all. But like he's definitely willing to talk to me about, you know issues around taxes and healthcare in a way that he wasn't before. I I think that there are, I don't know that we would have the same specific issues, but there are some like, for instance, um, I had to take a long, hard look at abortion, Mm -hmm. not the existence of abortion and whether I'm okay, whether or not I'm okay with it, but rather if there's half the country that thinks one thing and half the country that thinks another, and both sides are hoping to achieve certain things, what can we achieve together despite disagreement? And the first thing that I thought of, which really enraged a lot of people on my side, I said, uh, I'm totally at this point for absolutely completely government funded birth control. Oh, wow. And when people challenged me on it, I was like, that will reduce abortions. Well, I mean, that was my point to them was it was like, you know, you say that life is the most important thing. That's what you say. But then what? Fiscal issues are suddenly more important at that moment. Like, let's say it's 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 a bad thing, economically speaking, but we can live with it. But it's bad economically. OK, let's say the right's bad or excuse me, the right is correct that it's bad economically. I don't care. Mm. I really don't care anymore. I still want it. Um, there's the value because like your value is reducing what? the number of abortions, which is, by the way, like, again, like this is something you and I can agree on. Like, I, I think. What's going to the tragedy of the pro uh, life right right now is that they are going to see an increase in the number of abortions because of what they're doing. Yes. Well, and this, you know, I know that there's a lot of talk about smug liberalism. Like, I I know you've seen all the articles talking about, like, usually from liberals talking about smug liberalism. Yeah, it's a whole, I've, yeah, yes. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, and this will sound, I will almost sound like a, 
like the, the typical smug liberal when I say this, but I have started saying this to people and it does upset them when I say it, but they'll tell me, well, I'm sorry, but I'm not willing to, I'm not willing to give any ground on this issue. And I say to them, I say, well, let me just ask you in the course of your life, if you were to compare the amount of time that you've spent picketing abortion versus the amount of time that you spent counseling an expectant mother, mm. where have you spent most of your time? And they don't like that question because the fact is, I, uh, I think I probably was, I, I was a little better about actually talking to people than some of my friends were, but it just occurred to me that if the extent of your counsel to someone who is considering an abortion is that you're a murderer what have you achieved and how have you persuaded them in any way, shape or form? How have you helped them? How have you made the world better? Um, how have you contributed to abortions going down? You haven't done any of those things. Uh, All the, you've done is fight. I, on and this show, I, I just think it's time to rethink that, which doesn't mean I have to change my views. In fact, I've argued that if I changed my views uh, specifically because of Trump, then my views were the ones that were malleable. I haven't changed my views. I have changed the vehicle under which I think that my views might get a bigger audience and make more sense to people and stop being sullied by these shitheads. And also, I think you've changed the way that um, I, I would actually give you even more credit about rather not about your views. I think what you're thinking about is outcomes and what what yes. your values are. And like, mm -hmm. if your value is you want women to have fewer abortions, for instance, yes, then everything else needs to flow from that, right? And be oh, yeah. information yeah. driven. Absolutely. And also, you will find allies. <laughs> you know, yeah, I know you will and, find and, if and, your value is I want to, I want to, I want to create a world, you know, where there are fewer abortions. Like, I'm going to stay away from like the language around it. Um, I, I, sure. we, we don't have because we're never going to agree about that, right? No, of course not. But, but as long as the country, you know, as, as the, the thing is, and, and I've said this to people too, they're like, I'm not going to stop fighting. I'm like, okay, let's say tomorrow, like, you know, they suspend all um, legislative filibusters and the Senate and the Congress passes a bill that completely bans abortion 100% and the president signs it into law and the courts uphold it. What do you think happens? Yeah. What do you think happens really? Yeah. Because what I think happens is, basically civil war. <laughs> and oh, so, I think women you know, die. That's what I think. Well, and so my issue is, if you really believe, whether you're on the, on the pro-choice side of it or the pro-life side of it, like whichever side of it you're on, if you really believe in all of your heart that you're right, then why does only 50% of the country agree with you? You're not <laughs> making your case. Go make your case because you can't just change everything with, with only half of the country behind you. It just doesn't work on something this fundamental. And it has to be on this show. Uh, I talk a lot about uh, the program of attraction, not promotion, as a, the kind of evangelism that works for me and that I think mm -hmm. works best in general. And I think pro-life conservatives do a terrible job of, of that particular kind of evangelism. Um, uh, yeah, they, they <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, when your when your core argument 
when the core argument, regardless of whether or not, like, you know, obviously you and I disagree on the language I'm about to use. But when your core argument is that you're talking about a human life, and by and large, you're the demon mm-hmm. in the argument, you've given a really bad case for what you're saying. You know, you, you, people should at least, in my opinion, and this is one of the things that I've written about, people should at least be able to get to the point where they can disagree on something and understand where the other person is coming from. And we don't do that. You know, I've said to people on the right before, I've been, I've, I've said, uh, you know, you would be up in arms about your autonomy in any other scenario. Mm. You would be losing your mind if the government was saying you couldn't do X, Y, or Z with the doctor. You can't That's get erection, erectile dysfunction pills. You can't, you're not allowed. Like we have to have a doctor right. make sure you can't get a heart on. You have to, the doctor has to be there right. <laughs> to watch yeah, you. You've got to have four witnesses. <laughs> like, you know, and, and like they would lose their minds. And, and I'm like, can't you, even if you think that the underlying things that are instructing their view are wrong, that's fine. But you do understand what they're saying, right? I mean, like you get it. Y'all disagree on some underlying issues. That's the, that's the problem is those underlying issues. But, you know, to, to claim that somebody who doesn't think the same way about it that you do is a murderer, that doesn't help the argument. You should understand where they're coming from. Now, I think the left has that same mm. problem, you know, which is the war on women problem. Well, like, I, I think that that you can disagree. You can think somebody is scientifically a, a boob. That's fine. You're, oh, my gosh. You're so, your scientific understanding is ridiculous and preposterous. Okay, that's fine. You can think that, but still understand where that motivation is coming from, mm-hmm. because wanting to protect what you believe is a life is still a, a good thing. And then we can have the actual argument. Because right now I'm arguing for a life and you're arguing for uh, autonomy and we're not like having the same argument. And of course, we're at each other's throats. Well, I think this is actually a a lovely place to end our conversation because I think we we agree. Um, And we don't often get to that place on this show. Um, (laughs) Fantastic. This went in a direction I did not expect. Fantastic Uh, baby murderer. (laughs) (laughs) Woman hater. Um, yeah, see, I was actually going to say the war on women problem is I think that I, I don't disagree about the idea of a war on women, but I think that it's the messaging is weird because there are so many pro-life men who just don't think of themselves as hating women, you know, and if right. you say like, that's what you're doing, they're just going to shut their, you're going to sh- shut their ears, the, you know, that's the biggest issue with issues like this is that some of y'all, some of the spokesmen on the left, just like the spokesmen on the right sometimes are. You know, wow, that guy seems like he's been in a Klan meeting. You know, and then <laughs> on the left, I think sometimes the issue is, okay, I understand what he's saying, but I just want to punch him so bad. <laughs> you know, and like it, there's an issue on both <laughs> sides with the spokespeople that get put out there um, just being awful at it. And <laughs> Well, that's why we need to not rely on spokespeople. I mean, that's why we need to actually speak to each other more. I mean, right. Have, and 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 in terms of the the politics and the governance, find people that can can uh, articulate uh, what a movement is looking for. And I think, you know, I, I still want conservatism to succeed, but I no longer want Republicans to. I want them to die a horrible, painful death. Not individually. But <laughs> well, hey, you know what? With the AHCA, you might get that wish. Like lots of. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't think Trumpism is a precondition, pre-existing condition, but uh, it could be. Oh, but there'll be plenty of Trump voters that are cut off from health care. So that's another conversation for another time. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, anyway, it was really nice talking to you, Ben. Um, we will have you back, I'm sure. Thanks. Okay, sounds good. Thanks for having me. And thanks to Ben Howe uh, for being on the show. You can follow him on Twitter at, at Ben Howe, B-E-N-H-O-W-E. There are a ton of online mattress retailers popping up these days. I understand their whole blogs devoted to uh, the mattresses and um, sleep stuff that's advertised on podcasts lately. It is a growth industry. But guess what? One size fits all doesn't work. And that is what most mattresses offer you. Helix Sleep offers something that doesn't exist anywhere else, a mattress personalized to your unique preferences and sleeping style that won't set you back thousands of dollars. Go to helixsleep.com slash Anna, that's A-N-A, and take their simple two to three minute sleep quiz. They will build a custom mattress that will be the best thing you've ever slept on. And for couples, they personalize each side of the mattress. Everyone from GQ to Cosmopolitan to the New York Times are all talking about Helix. And once you try it out, you'll know why. Your custom mattress arrives direct to your door in a week and shipping is free. Try it for 100 nights. If you don't love it, they will pick it up and refund you in full. Go to helixsleep.com slash Anna right now and you will get $50 towards your custom mattress. That's helixsleep.com slash Anna, spell it A-N-A, for $50 off your order. Also check out Helix Mattress Protector and the Helix Foundation 7.8 five inches of solid pine upholstered with the same woven fabric as your Helix mattress. It can be built and broken down in only two to three minutes and it's completely compatible with any mattress. Go to helixsleep.com slash Anna right now. You'll get $50 towards your custom mattress. That's helixsleep.com slash Anna. Adam Savage, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. You are a currently a freelance mythbuster, a science advocate and editor-in-chief of tested.com. What is tested.com, Adam? Uh, well, Tested uh, Tested started out as a venture that Jamie Heineman and I were doing with Norm Chan and um, Will Smith, uh, not the Will Smith, a different Will Smith. <laughs> um, and it's uh, Jamie. Jamie left a, a, about a year ago when we wrapped MythBusters, and it's my it's my portal on the web where I celebrate making in all of its forms. Um, we talk about gadgets. We talk about uh, the process of of creating, whether you're a filmmaker or a maker, a sculptor, a performer. Um, and it's all things, it's all things celebrating that aspect of, of altering the world around you. Um, it's been, it's been where I've been putting most of my energy for the past year. And of course, I've called on you today sort of in the context of being a freelance mythbuster and science advocate, although I think this fits in with Tested too, in a way, because we're talking about testing reality. Oh, yeah. We're going to talk to a listener who wrote me um, with a problem. Uh, her name is Keely, and I understand yeah. she's on the line now. So, Keely, hello. Hi. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning, Keely. Okay, so um, I was just introducing Adam, and Adam is going to try and help you out and help me out helping you. You wrote me about um, a situation you have in your family. Do you want to tell us what it is? Yeah. Okay. So, um, basically I have a family member that, uh, has kind of lost her mind. It seems like, um, before the election, you know, everyone in my family, were very pro Hillary. We we're all Hillary supporters election day. We were, you know, excited. 
you know, about her becoming president, and then that didn't happen. <laughs> and, um, you know, we all had kind of different responses to it. Like, I I cried, but um, my sister, she didn't. She, I mean, which is fine. I don't think she should have cried. But uh, her response was just sort of like, well, you know, Trump's president now. There's nothing we can do about it. We just need to move on. So that was, like, back in November, December. And then January, like, um, the the Women's March, like, I went to the local one here. And uh, she wasn't really very supportive about that. And she just, you know, she kind of made me feel like she thought I had, like, a I was going downtown with, like, a bag of bricks and going to, like, do some damage, you know? Mm-hmm. Which, like, wasn't what was happening at all. But, um, and then she was real annoyed by the women in their pink hats. And then, like, the next week, she seemed really concerned about... Milo, what's his faces, like, right to free speech. So I was just like, what's going on here? Like, just, it just seems sort of strange. So then I went to look at her Twitter, and um, it's not, I mean, like, both her and I, our Twitters, we have no presence, you know, we've got, like, 60 followers, but I think we both use it the same way, just to kind of look at what's happening, find out what's going on, and then, like, you know, kind of promote ideas or, or things that we want to you know, retweet and stuff. And I looked at her tweets and it was just sort of craziness. Like there's tweets about the deep state, Pizzagate, worldwide pedophile rings that are protected by the mainstream media, George Soros paying for the women's day off mm. or the day without women, fake news, um, you know, like New York Times, Washington Post, being fake, fake news. It was just really not, like, in line with the way she's ever thought before. Like, you know, if, if in the past she'd been, like, a birther or something, then I, this wouldn't be, like, surprising to me. But I'm like, oh, my gosh, what's happening here? Huh. So then I went on my... I just started kind of tweeting against her tweets. That we, I just sort of entered into this little silent Twitter battle. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't think she even noticed. But then she did notice, and she got mad at me and said, you know, she wanted me to stop following her because I was making fun of her. Which I really wasn't making fun of her. I was trying to, like, get some different information out there. Mm-hmm. So and now we're not talking. And, I mean, I didn't have a very good conversation with her that day that she told me to stop following her on Twitter. Because, you know, she told me that uh, she respected my opinion, and I should respect her opinion. And I was like, but that, like, like Pizzagate isn't an opinion, you know, like. Right. Like that. And that's sort of the part that I really found interesting about your story, which is that you kind of ended it in this way, ended your conversation with her where she said to you after she's put out all this disinformation, she, you need to respect her opinion. And that's, that's kind of how you left it. Yeah. And so we haven't really spoken. I mean, I'm not mad at her at all. I'm just concerned because I don't really know why like this stuff is, I don't know why she's seeking out this information. It's sort of like she doesn't trust the, you know, New York Times or Washington Post. Like she's got to get deep in the internet, and she's like following like this Infowars mm-hmm. editor at large guy yeah, that like. Yeah. So do you, do you, <laughs> go ahead, Anna. Oh, I was just going to say I was going to make sure like we. I think we are up to date on the situation. But Adam, do you have any questions for Keely before we try and? delve into this a little bit no no i look i've heard this um, a a bunch of times this is this is a really common thing that's going on all over the country right now and um it is a thorny and difficult issue because the social con when someone says in the abstract wow she says her opinion it's her opinion when it's factually untrue it's easy to say well that's ludicrous that's not an opinion but when you're in front of someone the social contract 
uh, it's much more uh, sticky and, and complex and it's difficult to look at someone and say you're completely wrong. Um, but I think that perhaps one of the places to look for a solution here is in to really look at the root causes. I mean, it sounds a little bit like your sister is having a, a, a kind of an almost magical thinking response to the grief of, of what's going on. I have long believed that there is a comfort among conspiracy theorists because they'd like there to be somebody in charge, even if it's someone they're having to work against, because that's much better than the reality, which is that almost nobody's in charge. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and what seems strange to me, though, is just that there's this Russia thing that is a possible conspiracy. And instead of, yes. I mean, it feels, it feels like you feel kind of crazy being like, Russia, Russia, Russia. But that's like something that seems like that if you're looking for a conspiracy, that that might be a real one. And she just totally discounts the Russia thing. She's like, Russia, it's not Russia. You know, it's like nothing, right. nothing to see that. And, and so I keep redounding to, look, I, 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 the caveat I'll give at the beginning is that I'm a huge believer in therapy. I've been in therapy for uh, a couple of decades, and it's done tremendous things for me. So I really believe in sitting across from someone and talking through stuff. And one of the things, I actually come from a family of therapists. My mom is a, is a psychotherapist. And one of the things that a therapist um, must train themselves to do when they're sitting across from a patient is have what's referred to as an unlimited amount of positive regard for their patient. Mm. And they have to foment this in themselves. No matter what their patient is telling them, they need to look at that patient and think of, think of them in the most benign way possible. And so rather than concentrate on the facts that your sister is, is explicating or diving into to find some comfort in the difficulty she's having adjusting to the politics of the times, I might consider that you think about the, the grief and the, 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 the sadness that she might feel at feeling so powerless. And conspiracy theories, I think, make the powerless, help the powerless feel less powerless. You know, I, I, uh, when I tweet, and I tweet fairly politically, um, fairly frequently, I'm always operating under the assumption that most people out there are trying to do the same thing I am, which is just make a better world for my kids and for my neighbors. They might have different methods, and they might be interpreting what's going on completely differently. But if we start from those root causes that were people, and we love those people near us, I think we can find some common ground. And I, I'm not saying it's an easy solution, but... If you start perhaps talking to your sister again when you guys feel comfortable and avoiding politics for a little bit of time, but building some trust so that she feels like there, there is a space for her. And this is one thing that has been proven repeatedly in psycho psychological tests is when people believe something fervently and you show them facts to, that, that disprove it completely, they often hunker down and double down on those beliefs. People don't like being pushed off of their base. Yeah, it's called the backfire effect, straightforwardly enough. And, yeah. and Keely, I actually, my question for you, I think sort of dovetails with, with what, or my suggestion slash question dovetails with what Adam's saying, which is that I think that when you're dealing with your sister, like you have to decide if your goal is to get along with her or your goal is to convince her that she's wrong. And I think those two goals are not necessarily in line with each other. And, 
and and I think what Adam is sort of suggesting is like establishing common ground first, right? And kind yeah. of kind of giving up a little bit, yeah, on convincing yeah, her. Which, yeah, that, I mean that makes sense. And I mean, I understand like really neither one of our thoughts are that important. Like we're not going to be able to change anything. She's right about. I mean, well, I try and do like you know. I, call I, I, I wouldn't say that, Keely. Your, your thoughts time. are important. Your thoughts are important. But, but I mean, I, it's more important for us to get along. And I just, I mean, she has blocked me on Twitter now, so I, I don't. I mean, even though I can still go look at it if I want to, but. I mean, it was just looking at this stuff and I'm just like, oh my gosh, what, like, how is she thinking this stuff? Mm-hmm. And it still kind yeah. of bothers me, like, to talk to her. I mean, I, I, I don't know. It's hard. Like, I, it's, I, I mean, she can believe that Pizzagate happened, but it, that kind of bothers me too at the same time, you know? But then I'm like, yeah, we can go hang out. We don't have to talk about Pizzagate. That's fine. But it's just like, how in the world, like, you know? is this your response to the election? Like Pizzagate, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, but I do understand that I can understand, like there's a lot of fear and that she's just trying to somehow make sense of things. But the way she's making sense doesn't make sense to me, but that's okay. (laughs) You know, I I look, I, 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 I have run into the similar, similar issues. I, I have a close friend, a husband of one of my oldest friends who's super conservative and recently told me, as I brought up uh, a, a book in defense of a point that I was making about racism, rejected this entire book as a, as, as a reasonable thing to talk about within our discussion. And I felt so offended by his literally putting blinders on in the conversation that in my head for, for a time, I wrote him off completely. Like, I'm just not sure I can speak to this man again. And yet I realized, you know, this is someone within my social sphere and I'm going to need to, I'm going to need to sort that out. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I'm here to tell you, I agree. It's really, really complicated. And and I guess I'll, I'll put a plug in here that, that sometimes putting the relationship before the the facts, <laughs> as, as frustrating as that can be for people who think that that facts matter, that can lead to some shifts in opinions. You know, I mean, I think people who listen to this podcast are going to get bored of the story by the pretty soon. But my husband, when we started our relationship was a conservative Republican, like socially liberal, but pretty conservative on a lot of things. And he's not anymore. And I will tell you though, but that's not because of me. In fact, like we made a decision kind of early on to not talk about politics because all we did was fight about it when we talked about it. (laughs) So we just sort of kind of like bracketed it. And I tried to just have faith that, this person that I loved and the things I loved about him, you know, his kindness, his empathy, his curiosity about the world, that those things would lead him in whatever direction needed to happen for us to be able to have our relationship. Right. And, and it, and I'm not, I don't even want to use the phrase it worked because it's not like I had a specific, I let go of a specific outcome. You know, like I let go of trying to get him to agree with me. And I'll tell you right now, he doesn't agree with me on a lot of stuff, but his worldview changed. And I think it changed because I, I kind of allowed it to change. You know, right. I didn't you try to push space it. between you to open up. Yeah. So I think that Adam's advice, although it, it seems like we might be saying, you know, to, to, to not worry about the facts. I think what it, this is, is just like trying to have some faith that if you give her support and space, 
you know, maybe she will start to listen because I think he's right. I think a lot of people that double down into really dark conspiracy theories are scared. Like that's what's happening, you know, and especially go ahead. I'm sorry. I also think like in time, as time goes on, she may be able to look back and be like, Oh, what was I thinking? You know, like, because I mean, she doesn't, She's not like a big Donald Trump supporter. So that's what's a little bit weird about like her tweeting all of kind of the alt-right talking points. But I just kind of feel like as time passes and I mean, who knows what's going to happen, you know, maybe he'll be out of office and people will start feeling stable again. But like, well, as time passes, there's also the fact that there's also the fact that for you, I can imagine um, in this time that all of us, I mean, I don't care what side of the aisle you fall on, everyone's stressed out in this country right now. Um, for you, you're feeling the stress of what's going on, and you're confronted with someone super close to you who feels like they're behaving like part of the problem. And when you're looking at, you know, solutions in your immediate vicinity, it also can make you feel quite powerless and angry that you can't affect even this thing really close to you. So another piece of my advice might be um, if you feel like you want to do something that brings about some healing in the country, it's, it's about finding some local activism mm-hmm. that you can do as a place to put that anxiety of what's going on with your sister as a way to sort of offset it. And it also has this separate benefit of setting a different kind of example. You're not just trying to correct her when you're with her. She sees that you're living an example of, I'm going to try and bring about some genuine change to make things better in the way that I see that they could be. And and I would add, if there's maybe something that's not a political issue, but that is a community issue that you guys can agree on, like maybe go walking some uh, shelter dogs together, like that might be a a place to, you know, like, you can be out in the world doing some good together. And yeah, but I'll come home with like eight dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and you might wind That's up with some extra idea. dogs, you know. Um, <laughs> but, but, or, I mean, there are other stuff you can do too. I, of course, no, I am a, fr- a fan of the cute pets are a solution to everything, but, you know. I totally agree with that. All right. Well, I mean, I do, I do too, but I just, I can't have 20 dogs in my house, which is what would happen. Because <laughs> then we get a call from your sister saying, I have this, <laughs> I have poor Keely's <laughs> turn. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you so much. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. And I think that's some good advice that I'll take. All right. Thank you, Keely. Thank okay, you. Bye. So, you know, I think we, what's interesting to me about the advice we both gave Keely there is that it didn't really have to do with like myth busting or science. Right. And it's because when you're dealing with the psychology of people, I think and specifically when you're dealing with the psychology of people who are standing in front of you, all the bets about facts have to play the back door to the emotional context of being around people that you care about. I think. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. And we, we were both slended on the same side with Keely, but of course that, you know, leads me to a larger discussion that we need. To, we're dealing in, in a time when the emotions in our political sphere are so high pitched. It feels like we're having Keeley's situation, I, I, like in our everyday lives, all the time. With even with strangers, it's the it, because the emotions are so high pitched. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah, no, totally. And I see it all over Twitter, and I, you know, I see 
obviously all of us do when we follow a bunch of different people, we see many different approaches to this dichotomy. You know, I see uh, people like Josh Molina, uh, the actor, um, being incredibly engaged and bombastic with people that he disagree with, disagrees with. Mm-hmm. Um, I see J.K. Rowling being, you know, using her, her prodigious intelligence and biting ability to write well, um, using it as a weapon. Um, and for myself, um, when Trump signed the first travel ban, um, for the first time really in my years and years on Twitter, I felt the need to get really political, but I also immediately saw backlash and kind of stumbled into wanting to not preach to the choir mm-hmm. and not necessarily wanting to convert uh, everyone to my to my way of looking at things, but to at least find some common ground so that even if you really disagreed with me, um, you'd stick around because I was being polite about it. And this is all by way of saying, you know, Mythbusters has a huge contingent, Mythbusters and Tested has a large contingent of fans that disagree vehement with me, vehemently with me politically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I appreciate that. But you have, and here it is a sort of a parallel to being in a relationship with someone. You have relationships with these fans, right? You can't get mm-hmm. up in their grill with them in the same way you kind of can't get up in the grill of a friend or a family member, or you could, but it would just be, it would do him a harmed relationship. So, so where do facts come in then in a debate if we're trying to be polite and we're trying to like not get too high pitched emotions, which can tend to backfire? And as you said in Tequili, sometimes if people are really dug in on their opinions, science shows us that telling them facts that you know, contradict their worldview, they'll just double down. Like, how do well, you marshal facts for an argument in an era when we're arguing so passionately that facts themselves almost do damage yeah look i the the approach i've been taking is that facts totally matter but it's also important that if i am i have a large platform i have to recognize that so if i'm going to do some sort of leadership with that platform if i'm going to express my opinion in, in what i think are constructive ways it's incumbent upon me to continue to establish the trust that I have with my audience. Uh, and so to me, being extremely civil is a key part of that trust. So, uh, you know, I state outright um, frequently, uh, frequently that I'm assuming we're starting from the same place of wanting a better world for our kids. Mm-hmm. If you're a racist and you think that you're better than someone else by dint of your birth or the luck of <laughs> the, the luck of your skin color, I have no use for you. And I ignore I literally reject that as a, as a category because I'm not speaking to those folks. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also very careful about the links that I post. Like, I understand that, like, while I look at Huff, Huffington Post a lot, it's super polemical in ways that even I find really distasteful. And I consider that if I was always posting HuffPo articles, I wouldn't be really supporting my argument that much because I'm, I'm messing them up with polemicism. So I try and be very spread spectrum about the kind of stuff I use as uh, as argumentative facts towards making my case. Mm-hmm. You know, and so where do you go that's not Huffington Post? I'm curious. What kind mm. of places do you cite? Well, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the Times. I also read The Economist and The Guardian. Um, my co-host, I'm, I'm on a stage tour right now called Brain Candy with, with Michael Stevens from Vsauce. 
And Michael does something which I have yet to work up the nerve to do. Um, he every day visits um, a whole bunch of the Donald Trump and right wing subreddits mm. to read what, in his opinion, the quote unquote other side is saying about stuff. Rather than reading the digested version, he wants to read it right from the community's mouth. And I really, I appreciate that. I, I think that's, that's, I mean, that's a, a laudable, a laudable behavior there. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I try to read right wing stuff. I, I will admit I don't have the stomach for the Donald Trump Reddit, perhaps that that might yeah. that might require a sturdier constitution um in all senses um of the word than i have <laughs> but, <laughs> but i admire but i do admire the impulse and i think it is important to t- take into consideration the news sources that are forming the world view of the people you disagree with like my in-laws you know, watch nothing but fox news right Right. And right. so I watch a lot of Fox in part because to them, their way of thinking makes total sense. Right. The world that yeah. they live in, yeah. as described by Fox News, their opinions are rational and, um, you know, and also their opinions and, and policy uh, advocacy, whatever the oh, policy advocacy, that's a fancy way of putting it. But their opinions and, the, and what they think should be our policies stem from this wanting the world to be a better place, they just also happen to believe in there's creeping Sharia, you know? Right. So, right, right, right. It's, it's, you know, and I think there's this added weight of, I, I remember the thing that used to drive me nuts when all my friends were film students is um, in a discussion when someone would say that movie is terrible, someone else would say, well, it made a lot of money as if that mattered in any specific way. Um, but I think that people place mere ubiquity as a large value. So they look at Fox and they think, well, if someone's paying to put all this on television, you know, a whole bunch of it must be absolutely true. Um, Yeah, it it is. It's super, super thorny. But I also feel like I was was backstage at a uh, one of John Hodgman's secret societies last year um, when a couple of really hilariously sweet Brooklyn hipsters came up to me, a couple and said, oh, we're huge fans of your show. And then the guy said, hey, uh, the other night I was reading a bunch of stuff about how the moon landing was fake, and I was just wondering, what's up with that? And I, <laughs> right. So I said, my immediate response was to be funny. I was like, ah, no, 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 don't, don't believe any of that crap. It's totally, it's total. it's not, it's not true. Mm-hmm. And then he said, yeah, but some of the stuff was pretty convincing. And I realized, oh, no, no, no. He'd been actually a bit turned by this. Right. And so instead of just dismissing it as, you know, what a scientist would say, not even wrong. Um, I spent about five minutes with him walking through, because I know the arguments, walking through a bunch of the arguments and cogently, gently really talking about them. I wasn't dismissing him. I wasn't uh, uh, underestimating his intelligence. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't being haughty or, or dismissive. I think I said that first. But, and by the end, I really hope that I sent someone away who was like, oh, I shouldn't believe that. Oh, but I'm not exactly sure. You know? Uh, well, I'm curious. When I, go ahead. Go ahead. No, after you, my friend. So I, I keep, I've always thought about politics as 100 people. I've always thought about politics as what if there was a town with a hundred people in it? Um, how would you behave? And 
breaking it down to the simple data set of a small number of people has always kind of helped me understand. And that's also why, uh, to me, for myself, I need to be rigorously polite on Twitter because I feel like that politeness earns me the ability to, to slowly um, put out fact-based information that could turn minds and could change people's outlook. We keep circling around this, and I do think it's true, and it's yeah. the point of this podcast is that we should be respectful in the way that we listen to one another, even if we don't agree. And what I've tried to do with this show and what I try to preach to people is even if there's no prospect of agreement, like you can't go into a conversation with the idea that my goal is to convince a person, my goal is to show them that they're wrong, because like that will end badly. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> but um, it, it, I, I had I had dinner with a, with this conservative friend of my mother a few years back, and he was voting for Trump. I'm uh, sorry, he was voting for McCain. And my mom said, oh those oh, those those days those like days when we thought right? people voting for McCain were bad. <laughs> I know. Mm. And my mom said, "Why are you voting for McCain?" And he started to talk about it, and she she said something, and he immediately said. Um, are you attempting to find out why I'm voting for McCain or are you more interested in talking me out of it? Because I'm not interested in having a second conversation. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a beautiful bit of consciousness about what's going on here. Um, at the same time, right, it feels quite desperate because the war on facts and the war on fact-based uh, uh, policy when you've got the budget director saying that globe, spending any money on global warming is a waste of taxpayers' money, mm-hmm. um, a fact completely immediately refuted by the Army Corps of Engineers and NASA and NOAA and every other government organization, it's, it feels like the stakes are much, much higher than they've ever been before. I was, was going to offer the hypothetical, like we're both preaching the idea that you should be, you know, kind and respectful and and, and attempt to understand before you try and convince. In fact, you know, convincing shouldn't be your operative goal. But I was just thinking like, okay, so Adam Savage, like you have a meeting with Donald Trump. What do you do? (laughs) Wow. Oh, my goodness. Like, could you even think about what to tackle first? Like, if you got a chance to talk to him, like one on one. Like, what would be the thing that you'd be like, this is what I really want to convince him. Or Again, we can't say convince. This is where I really want to try and reach him. Let's put it that way. Right. Um, goodness gracious. I would need several weeks to prepare for such a thing. But um, <laughs> my, my, my first thought is, um, honestly, because I feel, I feel, this is totally my personal opinion, that Donald Trump's psychology is fairly parsable from this distance. <laughs> Um, that I would play, that I would do my best to play upon his ego um, and attempt to point out that fact-based policy will be a faster way to a legacy he could be proud of and thus support his uh, crazy ego um, as opposed to just continuing to attempt to deny reality in the face of um, the onslaught of actual facts. Yeah, I think I think that's probably the right way to go. Like, just, it's it's you just have to tell him what what you're trying to convince him of will make him popular. <laughs> right? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you know, it's it, it's the the I can't even imagine what the backdoor meetings sound like in the last twenty four hours between these 
um, I'm, uh, these bastards, all of them, um, as they're you know trying to ram through this health care bill based on that has absolutely nothing to do with helping people. And, and they're now openly admitting it. And they don't actually seem to have an ideology underneath that. Um, but so there's the personal and then there's the political. So on the other front, though, where it feels like things are quite desperate, I feel very strongly in putting my body and my mouth and my intellect um, into the into the large stream of people protesting and making their voices heard, calling calling my Congress people, calling my senators, and uh, asking them to do the right thing and demanding that you know uh, that our fellow citizens being really taken care of. Uh, I think that has had a super positive effect, mm-hmm. especially uh, for the left, which. If I'm going to be really honest with you, I feel um, was a bit complacent up until now. I, I I think that you will not find much argument about whether or not the left was complacent up till now. I mean, they were complacent yeah. right up until Election Day. You know, <laughs> uh, this has been a wake up yeah. call. I mean, if we if we want to find some opportunities in the national crisis we're in, it's it's that we can no longer be complacent. And I think that that part about putting your body and your voice on the line in advocating for policies you care about. I think that's important in the project of reconciliation uh, in that it creates the visibility for the opinions that are that and policies we would like to be considered. It is helpful when you're talking to someone who doesn't agree with you to be able to say, look at all those people at the airports, Right. Like, as long as they don't right. think it's George Soros paying for everybody, like that, that does seem to undercut it. But, but even then, like, if it's a big enough protest, they can't believe they're all paid by George Soros, right? So if you yeah. can point to popular support and say, look at all of this, um, all of these people that are hurt, look at all of these people that are, you know, being advocates for this policy that you say isn't popular, like that can be useful. Like they're just, you just can't do it in the face of the person that you're trying to have a discussion with. Yeah, and you know, also I, the, our government does respond when the people when when the people speak. I I think that the, the 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 spontaneous protests in airport around the country after the first travel ban was signed are a real marker that the the populace does have power despite our you know weird electoral college and uh, difficult media that's going on right now. Um, and that I don't even feel the desperate need to change people's minds as much as I do to make to to make my voice heard to try and change the politicians' uh, stance on things. And you know, I I plan absolutely to be campaigning uh, as much as I can to get back as much of the House and Senate in 2018 as I can, because I firmly believe that you know that that is a path towards making sure more Americans are covered, more Americans can get a decent education, more Americans, you know, won't go hungry and have health care. Um, I want to start to wrap things up just because I know I know you have to go because you're a busy guy. Um, but I'm thinking I, I know you're you're a science advocate. Uh, you're interested in thinking things through. And I also know you're a fan of science fiction. Um <laughs> And I just wonder, you know, I I have dark moments when I think about our current political moment and I try and project forward. And it seems a lot like some of the most 
you know, dystopian scenarios that I've ever read. Do you ever have moments like that? I totally do. I, I, I completely do. But I also, I really do. And then I realize that the sort of desperation and lack of being represented that I feel right now is the, is something that, um, for instance, African-Americans and minorities in America have been feeling for decades and centuries. Um, and I do, even in my darkest moments, I do believe Dr. King is right when he says, um, you know, the moral arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. Um, I do see, even though I see terrifying things like Marnie Le Pen and um, that politician, the various right-wing politicians all over Europe and the world, the Philippines being being brought to power, I also see a world that is getting smaller and a, a world community that is mixing more and more and more in the best way. Uh, and so I, I also... I try and hold this belief that it's it's the death rattle of, of of this stage of human development where you know demonizing the other is the fastest path to power. I really really look forward to a day when that is not necessarily the the, the most efficient and efficacious way to get elected to office. And I think that seems like a good place to wrap up our conversation. We'll end on a <laughs> relatively hopeful note. Um, Adam, <laughs> Anna, <laughs> it's the best we can do for now. It's a, it we, the best we can do for now. It's the best we can do for now. It won't be a dystopian hellscape. It it just might be the last time of dystopian hellscapes before we, you know, kind of are able to recorrect as a as a as a race, uh, not race. Whoops. Um, yeah, actually, kind of <laughs> as a race, race. Yeah. you know, <laughs> race. Our, our individual, and it's important to say that our individual divisions of what we call race within the human race are completely fictional yeah. and actually ahistorical. They didn't exist 200 years ago for the most part. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those fact <laughs> things. Welcome to a very special Easter egg bonus on this, the last episode of With Friends Like These of 2017. For this bonus content, I'd like you to come with me on a little journey. It is a journey through the comments of Milo Yiannopoulos' editor. You may not be following this very closely because, well, you shouldn't. It's a total sideshow. But if you aren't, uh, the quick and dirty summary is that Simon & Schuster gave Milo Yiannopoulos, the hateful troll, a book contract. And Milo turned in a book and people got really upset. And Simon & Schuster had uh, Roxanne Gay, for instance, pull her manuscript. And so they canceled the book contract. Now Milo is suing Simon & Schuster and Simon & Schuster is countersuing. And in the countersuit, they simply submitted the entire manuscript that Milo turned in, basically as evidence that it wasn't good enough to publish. That on its own is pretty awesome. But what makes it extra delicious is the fact that Simon & Schuster turned it in with all the editor's comments attached. They are incredible reading. And, and it really is a journey. And, and I want to just take you with me. I'm not going to read the entire manuscript. I'm just going to read a few select comments to kind of a, give you a sense of what's happening here. 
it starts out, and you can tell that the editor is is, is hopeful. Um, he's trying to make this a better book. He says, careful that the egotistical boasting that your young audience finds humorous doesn't make you seem juvenile to other readers, especially here. Avoid parenthetical insults. They just diminish your authority. Throughout the book, your best points seem to be lost in a sea of self-aggrandizement and scattershot thinking. Now, you may think those are insults, but no, really, this is the editor trying to make things better. More. Add something like this, since most accusations against you point to harm they claim you've done. Off the point. Citations needed. Delete irreverent and superfluous ethnic joke. This is unclear gets in the way of the point you're making and is not even funny. Things kind of go downhill starting on page 50 or so, where uh, Milo quotes from what he says is all's well that ends well. And in the notes, the editor says, this is not from all's well. It's from one of my favorite scenes with Prince Hal and Falstaff. I think this sent the editor over the edge. I really do. Because after page 50, the comments start to get a little unhinged. You have to explain the events that led precisely to your deverifying. And then you're being banned. You cannot be vague or coy or assume the reader knows. This is exactly what they accuse you of. Um, like your Milo swag? No need to drag the lesbians into this and don't use lesbian as an insult. If that headline is hate speech, this whole book is hate speech. You can sense him losing his patience. Uh, The helpful comments start to fall to the wayside and it just becomes more and more like this. Don't use lesbian as an insult. Three unfunny jokes in a row. Delete. This whole section is filled with assertions that don't have the weight of fact, understand the difference, and back up every claim here because this section will be hotly scrutinized. And finally, well, not finally, it's only midway through the book, but we get to a section where basically every comment on the side becomes not just an insult, but a cry for help. No, this does not show this at all. Gratuitous. I will not accept a manuscript that labels an entire class of people mentally ill. All of them? This is just off topic. How do you know this to be true? What does this mean? Are you trying to tie the suicide to the decision? Ridiculously reductive. Dumb joke. The use of a phrase like two-faced backstabbing bitches diminishes your overall point. Unclear, inappropriate place for humor. That's all just right in a row. It sort of just is building to a crescendo. Rape victims are routinely challenged. They have been for decades. Until finally... We get to a place where he simply says, delete. Ugh. That's on page 84. It's got about 60 pages to go. I think something happened here. I think the editor gave up. Because after a few pages of all caps and exclamation points and deliberate insults of Milo, he reverts back to this kind of tired, deadpan, kind of trying to be helpful tone sarcasm and sexual humor get in the way of your point here delete this gets in the way of your point here delete too important a chapter to be scoring points delete absurd name calling off the point again this is what you're accused of 
not a sentence. And almost last comment and one of my favorites. Let's leave Cuck out of here. And so here's my theory. The editor, who I guess is a known conservative, actually wanted to make this a good book, uh, which itself is problematic, let's say. I think to accept a manuscript from Milo in and of itself is immoral. To try and make it better, even more so. That the editor got so upset with him is less a sign of morality than, I don't know, ignorance? Ignorance that he thought Milo was better than this? I think anyone who was familiar with Breitbart or Milo could have told him that this is the manuscript they were going to get. Some people have been celebrating this editor as a kind of hero, and I just want to say that's not what I'm trying to do. As enjoyable, as delightful, as delicious as his insults of Milo are, they're not the mark of someone who's on the side of the resistance. This isn't someone shooting down Milo. This is Milo's ego getting caught up in friendly fire. And that's it for the show. Have a happy new year, and we'll see you in 2018. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Ah, Is there a door behind all those spiders? It's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. Ah, this is perfect. Relax, you booked a Verbo.